Scripture reading, 1 Peter 1, verses 1 through 9. Uh, I'm reading from the authorized version. Let's stand together as we hear the Lord speak to us through his word. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. But the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, ye love, in whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. And let's pray, asking the Lord to teach us from his word. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your word, which is a light unto our path. We pray that you would help us to read it and consider it and understand it. We pray that through your spirit, you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts open and receptive to your words. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. My message is on consolation in troubled times. Uh, The theme of this epistle is hope through Christ in the midst of suffering. There is a general goal here teaching us to look up or to look to Christ in the midst of challenges. And we see repeatedly a focus on Christ's redeeming work and the glory of our eternal destiny. Let me go through our verses by highlighting a couple of themes. First, is that Christians may face struggles based on verse 1. We know that this is an epistle of Peter. It is from Peter, the apostle, so identified in verse 1. We know later in the epistle, he identifies himself as an elder in chapter 5, verse 1, or a fellow elder But here is a letter from Peter, an apostle and an elder, written to strangers. And versions may have different words translated, maybe exiles, aliens, sojourners. But it's written to strangers or to those who are scattered throughout, or those of the dispersion, 
or literally, the Greek tells us, those of the diaspora. They have been scattered abroad and were told even where they have gone. Different places in Asia Minor are listed here. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. And the particular places don't mean so much to us as much as the fact that they have been pushed out into new regions. Sometimes persecution was the means of scattering Christians. We see this as an example, for an example in Acts 8.1. A persecution arose and the believers were scattered about. And in the process, they extended the church as they went. We find something very similar in James. And so James begins his epistle by saying... James 1.1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. So they've been scattered and they're facing a tough time. And the same is true for Peter's audience. And so as we look through this epistle, we find reference to the things that they are enduring or will be enduring. In verse 6, there's a reference to heaviness and manifold temptations. In verse 7, a reference to the trial of your faith and being tried by fire. In chapter 2, there's references to strangers and pilgrims and the promise of facing testings. In chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, that a reference that they will suffer for the sake of righteousness. In chapter 4, verses 12 and 13 and 19, a reference that they will suffer according to Christ's model. Or look at the conclusion of 1 Peter chapter 5, starting with verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion walking about, seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are around the world. But the God of all grace, who has called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, After that ye have suffered a little while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so Peter preaches to a church that is facing trials. In his next epistle, Peter says that he will shortly be departing, and indeed Peter was martyred. In fact, if we look at church history, we see that sometimes Christians have political clout and cultural influence, and sometimes there are times of persecution and marginalization. Uh, There is, I think, in our own culture, an increasing hostility to the things of the gospel and a biblical worldview. And yet I would add that Peter though he underscores the struggles of the church, is not pessimistic. Sure, you're strangers and you're scattered about, but in verse 2, 
you are the elect of God. God has shown you mercy, verse 3. Or listen to the language in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, as Peter describes God's people. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but now are the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but have now obtained mercy. So he writes to people, aliens <coughs> facing tough times, but he reminds them that they are a special people chosen of God for a special purpose. You might even look at the status of Christ. In chapter 2, we're told that to the world he was a stone of stumbling, verse 8, chapter 2. But to God he was a chosen cornerstone, verse 6. And to believers he is a precious Savior, in verse 7. And then the encouragement in verse 6, that to those who believe on him, they shall not be confounded. They shall not be disappointed. They shall not be put to shame. So think in terms of your status in God's eyes and not in the world's eyes. Think of your position in eternity and not the particular temporal situation you find yourself in. Think of your calling as elect strangers in the sight of God, those who are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people for God's purposes. First, Christians may face struggles based on verse 1. Second, the triune God saves you. There's something exhilarating about the language of this verse, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Notice the triune gods set forth in verse 2, Father, Spirit, and Jesus Christ. The triune God secures your salvation. In fact, you could compare 1 Peter 1-2 to the marvelous description of the redeeming work of the triune God in Ephesians 1 verses 3 through 14. There is a description there in Paul's epistle of the work of God the Father Almighty done to the praise of the glory of his grace. And then the work of his son, Jesus Christ, who redeems us to the praise of his glory. And then the work of the Holy Spirit in sealing us in our redemption to the praise of his glory. And so we find here an emphasis on the work of the triune God in securing a people and saving a people and securing our salvation. Notice what he says about God the Father. Elect 
according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Peter isn't afraid to talk about the doctrine of election, of electing us and choosing us. In fact, the term election here governs the passage if you look at the Greek Greek word order. To the elect strangers scattered. And so even though you're aliens and sojourners of the diaspora, you are elect in the presence of God. God has foreknown us. Again, a theological term emphasizing how God sets his affection on us and sets his affection upon his children. It's a term that means more than just precognition but rather God knowing his people from the foundation of the earth. Listen to the language of Romans 8. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes foreknowledge in terms of the order of salvation. In Romans 8, starting with verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he did also predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that we might be the firstborn among many brethren. Whom, Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Paul gives a tremendous introduction to the work of the Father in our salvation. Let me read a few lines from Ephesians 1. I've already referenced this passage, but listen to the words here and compare it to what we've seen in 1 Peter 1-2. Ephesians 1, starting with verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us, unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. And so the Father's involved, the Holy Spirit is involved, verse 2, through the sanctification of the Spirit. There is special reference here to the work of the Spirit in our sanctification, We'll believe that the Holy Spirit is essential to transforming our lives and turning our hearts and renewing our minds and is essential in bringing us to maturity in Jesus Christ. If you look through 1 Peter, you would be surprised at the number of times he mentions the Holy Spirit. Verse 2, verse 11 verse 12, verse 22, frequent references to the activity of the Spirit of God 
in touching the hearts of God's children. Indeed, we know that the Holy Spirit is an agent of revelation in the giving of Scripture. We know that he points us to Jesus Christ, John 15. We know that he convicts us of our sins, John 16. We know that he regenerates our hearts, John 3. We know that he seals us in Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1. We know that he sanctifies us, 1 Peter 1, verses 2 and 22. And then at the end of verse 2, there's a reference to the work of Jesus Christ unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus was our sacrifice at Calvary. His blood was shed at the cross, and the scripture teaches us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins, Hebrews 9.22. Indeed, the Old Testament has a pattern that looked ahead to the New Testament. And as Moses sprinkled blood on the people, he said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you, Exodus 24.8. And we find that language used by Jesus at the Last Supper just prior to his trip to Calvary. In 1 Peter 1, verses 18 through 20, we find a further discussion of this theme. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. In Second Peter 2, verses 24 and 25, we read, He bore our own sins in his body on the tree, by his stripes you are healed. Repeatedly an emphasis upon the saving, atoning work of Jesus Christ through his shed blood. Or as we read in Ephesians 1.7, in whom, Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Many of you are familiar with the Heidelberg Catechism and especially the wonderful first question in that catechism. What is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer in part, that I with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my, unto my faithful Savior Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood hath fully satisfied for all my sins. And so in 1 Peter 1, verse 2, there is an emphasis upon the triune God, the saving work of God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, in securing your salvation. Third, your salvation is secure. Verses 3 through 8, let me pick up on some themes here. 
Our world is unstable and increasingly so. There are many uncertainties in life and it seems like they grow ever more apparent to us. But there is something that we can be confident and confident in and assured of and that is the salvation that we received as a gift from God. And so Paul begins verse 3 by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so when Peter here thinks about his salvation and the work of God, all he can do is say blessing unto God. Blessing to God because of his abundant mercies. We are told that our God is a God of all grace. 1 Peter 5.10 We are told that he is the father of mercies. 2 Corinthians 1.3 He shows his character as being a character rich in mercy. In Exodus 20, verse 6, we're told that he shows mercy to the thousandth generation. When the Lord reveals himself to Moses in Exodus 33, verse 19, as he describes himself and his character, he says, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. We have a wonderful and gracious and merciful God and that's the reason why we can be confident in our status now and in our future in eternity. Christians have been born again, Peter tells us in verse 3, begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He talks about being born again also in verse 23. Christ has been raised up. And so according to the scriptures, Christ not only suffered and died, but he has been raised up and has been glorified and exalted. Christians have an eternal inheritance, verse 4. An inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and unfading, reserved in heaven for you. So Christian, you've got a place in heaven. Your reservation is set. You have an inheritance that will never lose its luster, incorruptible, undefiled, and unfading. That's what God has provided for you. Verse 5, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Kept by the power of God. If you're hoping that your eternal destiny is secured by your faithfulness, you're in big trouble. But if you're hoping that you have an eternal destiny kept by the power of God, then you've got hope. 
The scripture teaches us that God preserves us and God protects us and God watches over us and God holds us in his hand and no one will ever take us away from the hands of the good shepherd. God preserves his people. We are kept by the power of God. What a wonderful testament to the eternal security that we have by the preserving work of an almighty God who has given his son to redeem us and will make sure that nothing ever takes us away. And so even if we have trials, we rejoice. Verse 6, wherein, and I said rejoice. I should have said, we greatly rejoice. Now this may be, counterintuitive if you've got trials and you've got problems and heaviness and manifold temptations your first inclination might not be to rejoice or to greatly rejoice but if you're reminded that your heavenly father has secured a place for you and nothing will take it away it gives you an opportunity to rejoice in all things Even our afflictions are glorious. Verse 7. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. If someone talks about trials coming to me, I'm probably going to be unhappy about it. No unhappiness here with Peter. He talks about the glories that will come to believers. Especially because we rejoice to see Jesus Christ. In verse 8, Whom having not seen ye love, in whom though now you see him not yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. And so you can endure almost anything because you know that glory awaits and you will behold the Savior. You will see Jesus face to face. Your salvation is secure. And in this epistle, Peter gives us multiple opportunities for assurance. Verse 3, the very end. Verse 2, the very end. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Strangers scattered might not feel much grace and peace, but considering your position in Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. First Peter 5, the great conclusion. Peter says, but the God of all grace who has called us unto his eternal glory by Jesus Christ, after that you've suffered a while, make you perfect and establish and strengthen and settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. My final point comes from verse 9, and that is salvation comes by faith. Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. The salvation, 
Our salvation comes by grace because of Jesus Christ through faith. The Bible throughout emphasizes faith. We're not saved by works. We're not saved by sacraments, as important as good works and sacraments are. We are saved by faith alone. Many of you are familiar with the great truths of the Protestant Reformation. Sola Scriptura, emphasizing the doctrine of Scripture. Sola Gratia, emphasizing the grace of God. Sola Fide, emphasizing faith. So Christus emphasizing the work of Jesus Christ alone and all things to the glory of God. Amen. Justification by faith alone was an essential doctrine of the Reformation and it reclaimed the biblical teaching on faith and trusting in God alone for our salvation. Faith is frequently mentioned in our passage Peter talks about a lively hope, verse 3. Faith unto salvation, verse 5. The trial of faith, verse 7. Believing in Jesus, verse 8. And then here, verse 9, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. I'll tell you a story about this. One of my daughters was... uh, talking, debating, arguing with a friend at church camp. It was at the time of the Federal Vision controversy, if you're familiar with that, but this new friend had argued that there was more to justification and salvation than just faith. You had to do this other thing or this other aspect was involved. And She had come to me asking questions about this. And I said, well, there's this scripture passage. And, and she said, yeah, but they interpret it this way. I said, well, there's this other scripture passage. And she'd say, well, no, they interpret it that way. And so we marched through some scripture passages. And she had the rebuttal that her friend had taught her. And finally I said, what is justification? Now, we had emphasized catechizing in our family. And so I had asked her this question many times in reciting the catechism. What is justification? And my daughter said, correctly, justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardoneth all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. And I said, well, that seems pretty clear, doesn't it? We both laughed for a while. And I thought, that's kind of odd, because why didn't the scripture passages settle the matter for her? But my guess is that in listening to people debate, there's this Bible verse and that Bible verse, and it's a dueling verses. And when she was reminded of this simple statement of biblical faith that she had learned and had grown to love, it was really helpful for her. We believe that salvation comes by faith. Justification is an act of God's free grace where he pardons all of our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight 
only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Amen. We are saved by faith. Well, we live in a crazy world. All kinds of strange things happening. We know that Christians face trials throughout the world. Maybe there will be trial or stigmatizing for Christians here. We know that historically Christians face trials, and that was certainly true of Peter's audience. But Peter reminded them that they are an elect people in verse 2. Indeed, they were a royal priesthood. They were a chosen people. They were a holy nation selected for the purposes of God. He reminds them that they are saved by the work of a triune God, of God the Father who foreknew them, the Holy Spirit who touched their hearts and was involved in sanctifying them, and Jesus Christ whose shed blood paid the penalty for our sin. There is a reminder that our salvation is secure and a reminder that our salvation is by faith alone. In all of this, we have a reminder of the eternal security that we have from the hands of an all-powerful God who protects us and preserves us. We indeed are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pray asking for the Lord to remind us of the things of his word. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the teaching of your word. We're thankful for the truths of the gospel we see there. We're thankful for the work of the triune God in redeeming and saving and securing a wayward people. That this is done because of the great grace of your Father because of the work of the Son, and because of the work of your Holy Spirit in touching our hearts. We pray that as we face a world that is disconcerting, you would remind us to rest assured in your perfect and eternal counsel and the salvation that you have given to us by your grace. Increase our faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Turn with me in closing to hymn number 424. Let's stand together as we sing hymn number 424, All Authority and Power.